Father, long ago you spoke to the prophet Isaiah and you said of your son that he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by you and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his stripes we are healed. Father, these are unspeakable truths. So profound. It's hard for me to read them knowing that Christ would do this for us. That he would be lifted up upon a cross that all who turn to him and put their faith in him can be saved, that you would send your son, Christ, to die for us. Father, I ask by your Holy Spirit you would take these heavenly truths and bring them upon us rightly this morning. I know many have come in today still so caught up in the world, so distracted by the things of this place and this time, and yet you want to speak to us heavenly things Give us ears to hear these truths. Change us this morning. Shape us this morning. We desire your presence. We long for your voice. We ask, Lord, that through the teaching and preaching this morning, you would make yourself known to us that we might know you. We ask these things in Christ's name, for he is worthy. Amen. Amen. John, chapter 3, if you have a Bible, let's open up. Gospel of John, chapter 3, we will continue our dialogue between Jesus and Nicodemus. And we will strike upon one of the best known verses in the New Testament, for better or for worse, John 3.16. And by God's grace, we will see it in the context of this teaching, we will have a much broader and fuller understanding of both the magnitude of the statement made in John 3.16 and the dire consequences of not knowing Christ in light of John 3.16. Because they certainly go together. In fact, if you use that verse in your evangelism, I would recommend you do 16, 17, and 18. Make it a package deal. It brings great clarity to the gospel itself. So if you were here last week, we we had a chance to begin looking at this dialogue between Jesus and, and the great Pharisee, the teacher of Israel, Nicodemus. And, and Christ was so gracious with Nicodemus, he said, Verily, verily, truly, truly, I say unto you, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then he says, and he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And he says to Nicodemus, you got to be born again if you have any chance of knowing my father. All the rules, all the regulations, all the religion that you are engaged in, great teacher of Israel, will do you no good in saving you. You can do nothing to save yourself. You must be born again. And he continues this dialogue today, and I'm so thankful that he does. He continues to then expand upon this teaching of being born again into the heavenly things as we look at verses 
12 through 21. And he will show us today, if we have ears to hear, how we are born again, and that is by Christ being lifted up on the cross. We will see reasons behind our being born again, and that is the love of God the Father for us. And then we will see the world's response, which is hate. We are haters of God. We are haters of light. And so I, I pray that you've come this morning. I prayed for you last night in several ways. One way was that you'd come and be able to hear the word of God. I thought, you know, um, pastors who are preaching faithfully the word of God need hearers who are faithfully hearing the word of God. Um, and so I, I prayed that for you last night. I pray that this morning you will have your ears finally in tune to hear him, to hear him. And there's so much he has to say in these verses. So let's take a look at the first question. How are we born again? Jesus, he wants to tell this to Nicodemus. And it's by him being lifted up. Look at verse 12 and 13. Jesus says to Nicodemus, if, if I told you earthly things, that, that is being born again, if I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And then he says in verse 13, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And so he establishes in verses 1 through 12, the beginning of the dialogue, that a man must be born again to be saved, that he cannot save himself. And then he's critical of Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel. <clears throat> and he's essentially saying, if you refuse to believe these basic fundamental truths of the faith, you've got to be born again to see, you've got to be born again to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying, how can I talk to you about heavenly things? How can I talk to you about other things? Now our Lord... He knows the power of the Holy Spirit and he knows that Nicodemus is going to repent and believe. Not this day, but he would before the end. And so he begins to reveal these heavenly things, not just for Nicodemus, but for the whole world that we might hear. He proceeds to teach these incredible heavenly things. I will argue the most extraordinary heavenly thing ever revealed by God to man here in this passage. The pinnacle of Revelation. Jesus is saying that to Nicodemus, I am the one. I am the son of man. I am the son of God. I'm the one that all of your prophecies pointed to, all of those years of study. I'm God in front of you. He says, I have descended from heaven. I've come from my father's throne. I've come from the heavenly realm now, I don't know if you know this, in the days of Christ, there, there were lots of stories about saints of old who had ascended into heaven and then came back down with revelation. Stories amongst the Jews. Jesus making it very clear to Nicodemus. He's saying, listen, no one has ascended into heaven and come back down. I'm the only one who's come down from heaven. And he's saying, I didn't go up and then come back down. That's my home. I made it. That's where my father dwells. That's where I belong. He's the only one. Jesus is the only one who can answer the sage's cry in Proverbs chapter 30, verse 4, when the sage cries out, who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fist? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? And then the sage asks, it's some of the, one of the most profound questions in all the Old Testament, what is his name and what is his son's name? Surely you know. And surely we know his name is Yahweh and his son's name is Jesus Christ and he's the only one that's descended and come down. And if that's true, my beloved, then we ought to listen to him 
We ought to hear what Jesus Christ has to say. He didn't go from earth to heaven and back down again. He came from heaven to earth. That's why he says in verse 11, if you have your Bible, look back. He says, we speak of what we know and bear witness of what we have seen. Jesus is saying, that's my home. That's my place. That's my father. He can speak to it personally and intimately. He's an eyewitness. More so, he's the one who made it. And makes his testimony of the utmost importance. Nicodemus did not believe him, but we must. We must believe what Christ has to tell us about salvation. And we must believe and hear what Christ has to tell us about his work of salvation. What was this work that he did? How did he accomplish it? Look at verse 14. In verse 14, he says to Nicodemus, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. These are the heavenly things. He already told Nicodemus earthly things. You must be born again to live. And now he's, I'm going to tell you heavenly things. This is how it's going to happen. God says, through Christ, you must be born again. I must make you alive. But we know that God cannot do this in violation of his own character and nature. That God can't simply open the doors of the heavenly realms and usher all mankind in because he cannot, we know this, scriptures teach, he cannot dwell with sin. He cannot have unclean people in his presence. In other words, God can't violate his own goodness and his own justice and his own holiness without doing something about our unholiness. So in order to make us spiritually clean, in order for us to be born again, God sent Christ as a substitute. He sent Christ to live a sinless life. And he had to live a sinless life because if Jesus Christ was going to die for anyone, he couldn't, he couldn't be sinful. If he had any sin in his life, he'd have to die for his own sins. But because he was perfect, because he lived his entire time on earth sinless, He could go to the cross and he could die in our place that we might have life instead of death. And this is the great work. This is his being lifted up on the cross. Look again at verse 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Do you know that story from Numbers 21? It is, you want to talk about a terrifying biblical narrative How would you like to be out in the desert and have venomous snakes biting you? I mean, it's one of those that I imagine if you were a little child that I didn't have this blessing of having these stories, but it would have caused nightmares. They're in the desert, and they're becoming impatient. Numbers 21, verse 5, and they spoke against God, and they spoke against Moses, and they said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? We're told, then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And then the same people who complained against God and complained against Moses, they came to Moses and said, we have sinned, we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, listen closely, make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and he set it on a pole 
And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Now, just as Christ, Christ expected Nicodemus last week, as we saw, to understand what it meant to be born again by the water and spirit, talking directly to Ezekiel 36 and 37. And so again, our Lord's so gracious, he's talking to an Old Testament scholar, and he draws him right back to this passage from Numbers chapter 21. And he expects, he expects Nicodemus to understand those who were in the desert that had rebelled against God and rebelled against their servant Moses, the consequence of that was death. God sent serpents. They were bitten by these poisonous serpents, and they died. They cried out for mercy, and God had mercy upon them. He didn't have to, but he had mercy upon them, and he told Moses to make a fiery serpent. It was a bronze serpent, and put it on a pole, and then lift that pole up, and anyone who was bitten by a poisonous snake, if they looked upon that pole, they lived. They lived. Salvation, I love this, does not come by God answering their prayer. They asked what? They said, take these snakes away. He doesn't take the snakes away. He doesn't give them an anti-venom potion to heal them. Instead, he calls them to be saved by faith, by simple, childlike trust, a pole going up that if you're bitten, look to the pole, not having any idea how it worked. To the pole. Do what I said. Have faith that I can save you from even these venomous snakes. Now, if this was the case for Moses and the Israelites in the desert, it shouldn't be all that strange for Nicodemus or anyone else to understand that God would use a similar means to save mankind, not by a snake, but by a son, and not by a pole, but by a cross. And that by his son being lifted up on the cross, anyone who looks to the son and trusts in God to save him will be saved. Nicodemus should have understood this. He would. It's not yet. He should have known that it was God who said in Isaiah 52, verses 13 and 14, my servant shall be lifted on high, lifted up and exalted Many will be appalled at him, his appearance disfigured beyond that of any human being and his, and his form marred beyond human illness. He should have remembered God speaking to Isaiah in Isaiah 45, 22, when he said, turn to me and be saved for I am God and there is no other. Establishing salvation by God's grace through faith in Christ, in the Messiah, and the one who would be lifted up for us on that Roman cross, that humiliating death. There was no There was no more humiliating death at the time than Roman crucifixion. Not only was it torturous and painful, but it was done as a display to all the people saying, this will be your end if you violate the laws of Caesar. It was to reveal the power of Rome. And in the midst of this horrific death and crucifixion, Jesus Christ had something to reveal himself, and that was the glory of the Father. He was revealing to all mankind that anyone who looks upon the Son of Man who was lifted up on high and believes will also be saved. The world would see his death as humiliating and foolish. The redeemed, his church, would see his death on the cross as God's supreme glory and revelation. No greater revelation than Jesus Christ on the cross. No greater manifestation of God the Father than giving Christ to die in that manner. This is the heavenly teaching that Jesus Christ is talking about in verse 12, that he says, if you don't get the earthly teaching that you must be born again, how are you going to understand something like this? 
How are you going to know, Nicodemus, that when I am raised upon that cross, if you look to me, you too can live, O great teacher of Israel? And how are you going to teach others if you don't understand this? He says, for all those who look to him, they will have, Jesus said in verse 15, eternal life, life forever in the presence and majesty of God. Now, we think of eternal life, and we always think of it as life that goes on forever and ever, and that's true, but that's not the, that's not the biblical understanding. John and Jesus said in John 17, 3, we're going to get to this in a few weeks, probably more than a few weeks, and this is eternal life. This is it, that they know you, God, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's eternal life. Eternal life is knowing God. And not just knowing about God, it means knowing God as your father. It means God knowing you as a son or a daughter. It's that intimate relationship. That's eternal life. And that's why John says again and again, you can have that eternal life starting now. You don't have to wait. As descendants of Adam, we know that every man is born with poison in his veins. We've all been bitten by the serpent of sin. It runs through us. Our whole nature is corrupt from head to toe. Our our heart, our lifelong desire is to rebel. And so we live out the nature of our father, Adam. And like those who were bitten by the snakes in the desert, they would die if they did not put their trust in God to save them. And so what Jesus says here to Nicodemus is that you don't have to die. You don't have to die. You don't have to experience eternal death. If you look to the one lifted up, if you look to the Christ and you believe, you too can have eternal life. You can know my Father and my Father can know you rightly, intimately, as you were created to know him. Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, although he doesn't understand it yet, that if you put your trust in me and and the work that I'm gonna accomplish on the cross, He's saying, if you understand that through my broken, beaten, bleeding body, lifted up on that stake, if you look to me, Christ is saying, and believe, then you can be born again. You will be born again. This is how God makes sinners alive, through faith in Christ. It's how he does it. I I don't think we should struggle so much with how he does it. I think what we should struggle with is why. Why would God do this? Why would, why would God pursue a people so rebellious and so sinful and so hateful to him? Why would he do that? Why would he send his one and only son, his only begotten son, to die for people who hate him? Especially knowing, and we know this, there's nothing in us that should have God be attracted to us. He loves us because he is sovereignly determined to love us. Paul said in Romans 5, 8, God shows his love for us in that while we were what? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When you still hated him, he died for you. Salvation comes to man not because of our goodness, but because of the kindness of God. If you are saved in Christ, you're not saved because you're good. You're saved because of God's goodness. 
So let's ask this question. Why is anyone born again? What compelled God to do this great work through Jesus Christ to make anyone alive? To make you alive? He is compelled by an indescribable love. I think we can get close here. The Son's mission to seek and save the lost is a product of God's love. He is acting out the love of God on mankind, on fallen man. Look at verse 16. Are you ready? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believed in him should not perish but have eternal life. Verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. When it says, for God so loved, for, in the Greek, it it can be translated in this way. In this way, God loved the world. In what way? In what way did God love the world? By sending Christ. By giving to the world his son. And not just so his son could come down and reign, but so that his son could come and live and die. This is the way that God expresses. This is the most magnificent way that God has expressed his love for mankind. This way of salvation, whoever believes in him, Christ, should not perish but have eternal life. But it also reveals the magnitude or the degree of this love, not just the way through Christ, but the fact that it is Christ. Say, how much does God love me? How has he shown this love for me? That he would send his only begotten, That word in the Greek, his one son, his one begotten son, his one and only son, the only one. This is the son of God. This is the only begotten son of the most high God. He is the firstborn of every creature. He is the Christ. He is the mighty one. He is the everlasting. He is the true Savior and King. He is the God of the whole earth. God the Father sent the God of Abraham. He sent the God of Isaac and Jacob. He sent the Lord Jehovah. He sent the Lord of hosts. He sent the strong and mighty God. He sent the Lord of glory. He sent the great I am to die for us. He sent the creator and sustainer of all things, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega, He sent the word of life, the image of the invisible God, the brightness of his glory, the wisdom of God, the power of God, the messenger of the covenant of God. He sent the man approved of God, the son of man, the son of Abraham, the son of David, the great prophet, the righteous servant, the branch of righteousness, the man of sorrows, the savior of the world, the same yesterday, today, and forever, the anointed one. He sent the lamb of God without blemish. The lamb that had been slain, the lamb in the midst of the throne, he sent the bridegroom, he sent the way, he sent the door, he sent the good shepherd. Are you blown away yet? He sent the root of Jesse, the true vine, the tree of life, the bread of God, the living bread, the true light, the great light, the bright and morning star, the son of righteousness. He sent the refuge from the storm, the hope of his people, the horn of salvation. He sent the rock of ages, our rock and our redeemer, the builder, the sure foundation, the living stone, the tried stone, the chief cornerstone, the precious stone, the stone of stumbling and rock of offense. That's who he sent. He sent the temple, he sent the veil, he sent the altar, he sent the offering, he sent the sacrifice, he sent the ransom for many. 
He sent the mercy seat. He sent the great and high priest, the mediator, the intercessor, the advocate, the unspeakable gift, the chosen of God, the most blessed God forever. He sent the truth, the faithful and true witness, the covenant of the people. He sent the just one, the holy one, the firstborn from the dead, the resurrection, the head of the church, the head over every man. He sent for you and for me, the captain of our salvation, the author and finisher of our faith, the leader, the commander, the ruler, the governor, the deliverer, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the chiefest among 10,000. He sent the Lord of Lord, the King of Kings, the Prince of Life, the Prince of Peace, the righteous judge, the merciful, faithful, undivided, perfect, glorious, justified, exalted, risen, glorified Savior. He sent your husband, your beloved, your hope and brother, your portion, your helper, your physician, your healer, your refiner, your purifier, your master, your servant, your teacher, your keeper, your leader, your feeder, your resting place, your food, your drink, your Passover, your peace, your wisdom, your righteousness, your sanctification, your redemption. God the Father sent you your all in all in Christ to die for you. When we talk about the only begotten of God, the word of God tells us who this is. That's the short list that I gave you. This is the one that God sent to die for you and die for me. God's love for man revealed in Christ, it overwhelms me. I am unable to communicate to you his love. I believe it is truly incommunicable, and that's why you must look to the cross to get a glimpse of it. And even the glimpse is so magnificent, it would blind us. His love for us, saints, is not some ambiguous, feel-good, cultural love. It was purposeful. It was to redeem mankind, to save us. And it was infinitely costly because the one that he gave to die is the one that I just described. There is no value attached to the cost of the love expressed in Christ. No greater love has ever been expressed in all of creation than God the Father for mankind in the giving and killing of his Son. Just as the proof of Abraham's love for God was revealed when he was going to crucify, when he was going to sacrifice his son Isaac, here we have on a cosmic scale, almost hard to compare, the father's love for mankind expressed in the giving of his one and only son. That word to give, in the context of our passage, it means to to give to someone in need, to care for someone's interests. You say, well, what interest do we have in the Son of God coming and dying for us so that we would not perish? That we might not experience the full and just punishment of this most holy God for our sins and rebellion against him. He gave us Christ to care for our interest, offering us eternal life instead of eternal death. Eternal life, knowing God, communing with God, having God forever, instead of the opposite Eternal death, condemnation, 
a perpetual state of judgment, separated from God for all eternity, not knowing his presence, not knowing his love. Look at verse 17. Jesus reiterates this. He says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus Christ, you just heard this, he is the creator. He is the judge. He will come again in glory. He will judge living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end here. But that's not why he came the first time. I love the first advent. We must love his first coming because God sent him the first time that he might redeem us. When he comes the second time, there'll be no redemption. There'll be no salvation. He will come and he will judge. But he came the first time, that first go around as a savior, as the savior of the world and not just Israel, but the savior of every tribe and every tongue and every nation as the gospel goes out to the ends of the earth and they hear the gospel and people and repent and they believe it's in this Savior, by him being lifted up, by Christ dying on the cross, you and me and our spouses and our children and our neighbors and our coworkers and the people we don't like all that much, they can look to Christ and they can be saved. They can be saved from death. They can have hope. The thought of physical death is, is a pretty horrific thing. I remember as a non-believer, I thought, then that's it? I mean, it just ends? That's it. Horrible. Horrible. But that's not the worst part. We know that that's not the end. We know that we will come into the presence of God, and if not in Christ, we will be judged and condemned to hell, an eternal death forever and ever. Christ came that we might have hope in the midst of this. Look at verse 18. He said, whoever believes in him, Christ is obviously talking about himself, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Now that, that word believe, it's, it's in the Greek, it's the same word we use for faith, and it's not just a, a said faith, it is a saving faith, it is a believing faith, it is a, a wholehearted, your whole life, trusting in the one who was lifted up to save you. Those in the desert, they look to the pole, they look to the bronze serpent that they might be saved by God, they trusted in God. Those who have a saving faith, trust in God to save. It literally says the one believing on him is not judged. Why? Because Jesus has been judged for you. Your belief in Christ means that you're not gonna be judged for your sins because Christ has been judged already. In other words, by his grace, through that belief, through that faith, you've been moved from a position of condemnation to righteousness, from, from being an enemy of God to being a friend of God through this Savior, through the work of Christ on the cross. And all those who refuse, Jesus said, this is an amazing verse. He says, they stand condemned already. They stand condemned already. Not, listen, not because they don't have faith in Christ, they stand condemned already because we are sinners before a holy God. Verse 18 is not saying a lack of faith condemns a man. A lack of faith means that you will not be saved because that's the only way to be saved. We are condemned because of our sins. And if we refuse the saving grace of Christ, 
then condemned we will be. If we reject the work of Christ on the cross, then the only thing that awaits you is judgment and eternal death. And so this is why we reject a teaching that, that often makes its way into Reformed circles on double predestination, this idea that God predestines some to be saved and he predestines others to be condemned. The Bible clearly teaches you, you are predestined to be saved if you are saved. It teaches that. I've heard Christians say, well, I don't believe in predestination. I said, well, you've got to get rid of the Bible. The Bible teaches this. Even last week, how is one saved? He must be what? He must be born again. That's the work of God. God must do this great work with those whom he chooses. The Bible uses the word of elect, those who he puts his favor upon. Paul says in Ephesians 1.4 that we are predestined to be saved before when? Before the foundation of the world, before anything ever was. It's a most extraordinary truth because what it says is if you're going to be saved, God's got to save you. Not because of anything you've done. Certainly not because there's any goodness in us. Because the Bible says that in his own counsel, according to his own will, he chose some to save by his pure grace. My beloved, his pure grace, you are saved. So if you are saved and you are one of the elect, you cannot stand and say, well, look what he did with me, of course. You are saved by pure grace. But because God predestines, as the Bible says, some to be saved, he doesn't have to predestine anyone to go to hell. Why? Look at verse 18. We stand condemned already. All mankind. It's our doing. When we were created in the beginning, it was good. There was no sin. But our federal head, Adam, he sinned, and we have sinned in his nature. We have rebelled against the living God. We have made our own path. We've chosen our own end without any help. And that means every person in hell will be able to say this, I did it my way, not the song that you want to be your life song. Everyone in hell will say, every choice I made, every desire I had, every word I spoke led me to this place. It was my desire to be my own God. It was my desire to, rec- to reject the real God, to live life as I saw fit. Every person in hell will say, this place of godlessness that I am now in, this place that is eternally separated from the same creator who pursued me in love with the death of his son who I rejected, this place is where I belong. The absence of all that is good and lovely and true, this is my place. So Jesus can say to Nicodemus, Whoever does not believe stands condemned already. God doesn't have to predestine anyone to hell because that's where we start. You say, that's a hard teaching to hear. I agree. That's what the Bible teaches, that we're born in sin and we exercise sin. We have to do nothing to reap the benefits of eternal death, but God must do everything to bring the blessing of eternal life to us. He must save us. So Jesus is saying to Nicodemus and to the whole world, I'm the only way out of this mess that you've made. I'm it. I'm it. I am the one God sent to save you. I am the one that will be lifted up for you. If you look to me and believe in me, you will have eternal life. So the question is, why aren't churches this morning filled with people running from hell. I mean, 
Why doesn't everyone come to places where the gospel is being preached? Why aren't they breaking down the doors trying to get in saying, I want to be saved too. I don't want this to be my end. Why, aren't, why isn't the world clamoring to be saved from this death that we have brought upon ourselves that is imminent for all apart from the saving grace of Christ? Why do they flock to places where there is no gospel? Why do they flock to churches where there is no word? And why do they gather on Sunday where there is no hope? Our last point gives us this answer. God tells us how we are to be born again. God tells us why we are born again by the love of God. And then he tells the world's response, and it's a response of hatred. Haters of light. Simply put, we hate God. We hate God. The man, woman, or child who is not born again from above, regardless, listen, saints, regardless of their upbringing or their religious persuasion or their disposition or their culture or their education or their values, that person is at enmity with God. They war with God. That's what the Bible teaches. And grievously, and it is so grievous, this includes many in the visible church today, many who have gathered on this Sunday morning in places in San Jose, in the South Bay, many who are in these places thinking they are saved and know Christ, do not know Christ, and therefore are not saved. They hate God. Look at verse 19. Jesus says, and this is the judgment, the light himself has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Verse 20, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. This is such a revelatory verse for the human condition, for the heart of man. I mean, we have so much testimony to the heart being completely depraved, right? But this verse, it really puts it down for us. When it says, this is the judgment, if you have an NIV, it renders, this is the verdict. That's, not, that's really not the best translation. It's saying this is the process of judgment. This is the full, painful-to-hear disclosure of the truth of the light coming into the world, Jesus Christ coming into the world. He came... And we know this from verse 17. He came that we might have life and not death, that we might be taken out of the light, out of the darkness, and into the light. But this passage, 19, reveals that we love the darkness so much. The sinful man loves sin so much that we revel in it and we glorify in it. And therefore, we stay in the darkness. We hate the light because we hate God. We hate God because he's good and we're evil. We, we hate the light because we don't want to be exposed. I mean, look, look at this first part. We hate God because he's good. Does that sound strange to you? We hate God because he's good. The goodness of God is a very troubling and I would argue terrifying thing for the sinful man. Terrifying because as a good God, he must judge. Troubling because his goodness reveals how sinful we really are. And so we hate him. God is good in all that he does. God is good in his justice. God is good in his mercy. God is good in all of his thoughts, in all of his words, in all of his works. He is good. Why? 
because he is good. That is his character. He's goodness through and through. At the opposite end of the spectrum is fallen man. Where all of our works are evil. And all the unsafe sinner can do is sin. You believe that? There aren't many in churches today that would swallow that pill. Look at verse 19 again. People love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. What works? All works. All works. That the man or woman not born again by God are evil. Now the modern man, if you were raised a Catholic, you came out of the Catholic church like me, you've categorized evil works. And our, our flesh does this, right? When we think of evil works, we think of rape, murder, kidnapping, armed robbery, I mean, you, it's something big, right? The Bible teaches that anything we do outside of faith is sin. Romans 14, 23. Romans chapter 3, Paul made it very clear. He said, none is righteous, no, not one, no one does good, not even one. All mankind, zero goodness, pure evil. Everything a person does outside of Christ, regardless of whether or not you think it's good or bad or the culture thinks it's good or bad, the Bible says it is evil. And that means even your most righteous deeds, I mean those things that you've really gone out on a limb for, you care for the poor, you minister to the widow, you help the sick, you work to overcome injustice, you're dealing with, you're giving up your resources and your time and your energy to serve those who have not all of those supposedly good things, the seemingly good works, fall into that same category, the Apostle Paul, when Paul says, even my most righteous deeds are nothing but filthy, bloody rags before a holy God. That's where we all start. That's why Christ can say we already stand condemned because there's nothing good in us. How can this be, you ask? My beloved, what makes something good is not the act itself. It's the motivation behind the act. It's the heart behind the act. If a daughter moves into her mother's home when she's the mother's older and ailing, and the daughter cares for her mother, not because she loves her mother, but because she wants the house as an inheritance when, she, when the mother dies, and the siblings are trying to get the house too. But she knows if I can get in, I can establish some credence for the house. You would say, that, that's wicked. That's heinous. But look at what she's doing. She's caring for her mother. She's ministering to her mother. But what's her motivation? She wants her mother's house. She wants her mother dead. The motivation of the heart determines the goodness of what we do. And here's the problem. The unregenerate heart, remember last week, is what? It is dead. And that means everything we do before we're born again is done from a dead heart. That means all motivation is self-glorifying. All motivation is idol-glorifying. Every single thing, no matter how good you think it is, no matter how sacrificial you were, how much money you gave, how much you served, before Christ, it was dead on arrival. It was dead when it came out because it came out of a dead heart. God deserves all the glory and all the honor 
for all that is good and to deny God any glory. Listen, saints. To take any credit for what the Creator, the glorious one, rightly deserves is the worst sin. It's the worst sin to deny glory to the one who deserves the glory. And the bottom line is, this is why we really hate God so much. I mean, we, he's good and we are evil. He gets the glory and we want the glory. And because we want the glory and we can't get it, we hate him for it. With every fiber of our being, we hate him. We hate the light because it reveals the goodness of God, it reveals the glory of God, and we want to be God. We hate the light because it reveals just how, how dark our hearts really are, so we stay out of it. Look at verse 20 again. Everyone who does wicked things, that's, that's who? That's everyone outside of Christ. Everyone who does wicked things, that's everyone outside of Christ, hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. We hide in the darkness because we know the light exposes us. You hide in the darkness long enough, you hide, in, and the hiding in the darkness is hiding in the world. You take on the ways of the world, you avoid the truth of God, you avoid the word of God, you avoid Jesus Christ, you stay there long enough, and you will actually fool yourself into thinking you're not that bad. You see, you know, I'm not perfect, but I'm not that bad. You can look around and see a lot of people worse than you, and you can, you can actually convince yourself, if you're in the darkness long enough, that you are light. Coming into the life, our conscience, is, it's, it screams at us. We don't want to be exposed because we know our sin, and we know we're sinners. We don't want to be exposed because we don't want to suffer. We don't want to suffer the consequences of our sins. And so we refuse Christ, we refuse the truth of the saving grace that comes to the cross, and in so doing, what do we do? We condemn ourselves, we stay in the darkness, which leads to an eternal darkness, and we bring judgment upon ourselves, we refuse the greatest gift God ever gave, which was his own son to save us, and we refuse that to our own demise. Once again, it's our own doing, or maybe better said, our own undoing. I know this may be hard for some of you to believe, but as a young boy, I got in trouble. And when I did, when I did and my dad was not there, I would hide. Before he got home, I'd hide. Because I knew, I knew when he got home it was bad. I was in trouble. I didn't, I didn't want to face him because I was ashamed. I didn't want to be disciplined by him because I knew I deserved to be disciplined. And, and yet, how foolish, thinking that I could hide long enough for the, for the discipline to go away. Of course, I was always found, thankfully. <laughs> how foolish we are as men and women in sin, in darkness, to think that we can hide from the living God. That somehow we can, we can outlast him. That somehow we can make it without ever standing before him, without ever being judged, without ever needing to be saved. My beloved, the the unsaved do not stand neutral before God. The unsaved hate God. 
The unsaved hate the light. They hate Christ. I'm so thankful that by God's grace, he's redeemed some of us out of that hatred. He's taken you and me and several others from a position of other darkness where we are hiding from him and he's shown us Christ. And he's made us alive. And he's given us a desire not for the darkness and not for wickedness and not for this world, but for his son and for righteousness. He's given us that desire. It's such a glorious thing to desire to be holy as Christ is holy. He's made you alive if you're in Christ. And if you're alive in Christ, you don't, you don't run from the light, you run to it. You run to him. Look at verse 21 and close. Notice that this, the ending of this dialogue is not one of hopelessness, it's hope. He says to Nicodemus, but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And Nicodemus would say, who does what is true? You just said that everybody does wickedness until they're born again. Who does what is true? The man or woman who's born again. The one who's made alive. The one in whom the Spirit of God dwells in them. They do what is true and they come into the light you know, once you're saved and you know this, if you know Christ, you begin to hate sin. Doesn't mean you don't battle it. Doesn't mean you don't sin because we do, we struggle with it. But you begin to hate the sin. I love hating sin. If Christ dwells in you, you hate it. John, again, in 1 John chapter 2, he said this, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. You're not saved. But, he says, in verse 10, 1 John 2, whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. Those who do what is true, those who live righteously, not perfectly, but righteously, when you sin, you confess and you turn, they come into the light, they rush into the light. They want to stay in the light. They don't want to go back into the darkness. And I love this verse. It says, they come into the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. We come into the light, not to say, well, look at how good we are. We come into the light and we stay in the light that God might be glorified in our works. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 5, that the world may see our good deeds and what? And glorify our Father in heaven. They may look at us and say, what happened to you? How did you go from being this dead, wretched, rebellious, God-hating soul destined for eternal death to someone who's striving for righteousness, who's pursuing the living God? How that happened to you? And they will see your love and they'll see your sacrifice and the motivation of that sacrifice not being self-glory but born of your love for God. They will see your families and they'll see your children and they'll see how you are at work. And the Bible says they'll glorify God and it doesn't mean that they'll be saved but they will glorify God. What a powerful testimony, saints. When we all stand before God and the unsaved said, oh, I saw those saints. I saw them. I saw how they lived and I saw how they loved and I knew it had to be something different. I knew it had to be something from you. Glorious. These works are carried out by God, for God, his power, his love, his glory. What a high calling. 
This is, this is an amazing calling. That you've been born again by the Son of God dying on a cross. And that God would show his love for you by, by killing his son. So that in so doing, his son could take your place. He could take your eternal hell that you might have eternal life. He could take you out of the darkness and bring you into the light now and forever to know his father, to really know God. I, I, know, I know why John 3.16 is shared so much because in the context, it is the most glorious verse to hear for the sinful man that God would do this unspeakable act and have Christ die for us, for you, for me, and for all who would look to him and be saved. This calling out of the darkness is a calling to holiness, saints, to live in such a way that God's goodness and his mercy and his love are made known to everyone how how he made us alive when we were dead because you were dead and he made you alive. Need we say any more? You were dead and he made you alive. That he loves us so much that he gave his one and only, his begotten son, that he might have life, that he gave the faithless faith. The only reason I have faith is God gave it to me. The only reason I believe is because God has enabled me to believe. That he would love us when we hated him most. And right before I was saved, I hated him most. With every fiber of my being, I hated God. That he would come to a sinner like me and save me and love me so much that I am compelled to love him in return. I only love God because he loved me first. You know that's true for you. We're called to be like the Israelites in the desert by simple childlike faith to look upon the one who was lifted up for your soul. And to believe. It is this faith that has the power to save. This faith alone in Jesus Christ as your Savior. To trust in him and then win that trust, live lives that bring him honor and glory. And then to bring this great hope of eternal life to others. The author of Hebrews said, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? There is no escape. The salvation offered by God the Father to man through the Son is so great that if we refuse it, there will be no escape. I'm terrified at the thought of the millions that will stand before God and they will see the crucified Christ who did not, they did not believe in him and there'll be no escape from it. I love this passage. 
it speaks to the depth of my sin and the magnificence of God's love in Christ. I pray it does for you as well. Let's pray. Father, we declare this proclamation through this holy ordinance of your death on that cross, of you being lifted up and your body broken and your blood spilled, that we might be saved, that we might have, as you taught to Nicodemus so long ago, eternal life. We remember that this morning, Lord, and I pray that it would place an indelible mark upon our hearts and minds, that we would not forget any moment of every day that you give breath to us, this great sacrifice that you made that we might live that we might have eternal life now, and we might have it forever, that sweet communion of knowing the Father and being with you and the Holy Spirit for all eternity. Father, we pray that this great sacrifice would be one that we declare to others, that we would boldly go to those who do not know you, those who are still in the darkness, and we would share this great gospel message, this great hope of salvation, that they do not have to perish, they do not have to stay condemned, but they too can repent and believe if they look to the Son. It's upon our lips, I pray, Lord, make us bold in our testimony. Give ears to hear all those who will receive it, and by your grace be glorified in the saving of many. Many this day, in Christ's name, amen.